Employee frustration can be difficult to diagnose. Common symptoms may include keyboard thrashing, oh. aggressive hair pulling, anxious sobbing, <laughs> and the royal I quit. If you detect one or more of these, your team may be infected with the highly contagious software frustritis. Don't panic. WalkMe's contextual guidance simplifies any software, providing an intuitive and hassle-free user experience. Everybody wins. Gets more done. Join thousands of leading enterprises that simplify their workflow with WalkMe. WalkMe. Get started now. Introducing the new era of digital identity with SoCure, the leading provider of digital identity verification solutions. The world is shifting to digital services. More and more people are expecting everyday transactions and government services to be readily available online. But this shift has also created new opportunities for fraudsters and identity thieves, which can put individuals and organizations at risk. That's why SoCure has developed a suite of cutting-edge digital identity verification solutions that can help prevent fraud while also ensuring equitable access for all demographics. SoCure leverages machine learning, AI, and biometric capture to provide fast and accurate verification, even for those without traditional forms of identification. Whether you're a government agency looking to modernize your identity verification processes or a business looking to protect your customers and prevent fraud, SoCure has the expertise and technology to help. Join the digital identity revolution with SoCure and help build a more secure, efficient, and equitable world. Visit SoCure.com to learn more. That's S-O-C-U-R-E.com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. The challenge in government is um, in government, you know, the mission owners have to solve for 100% of the population. And that's really hard to do. You've, you've got to find a way through some channel to be able to serve all constituents and, and make services available to everyone. I think there's a balance, though, when you can do it through certain channels in a way that puts uh, less friction on the majority of the people and prevents as much fraud through that channel as possible. Um, I think there's a limiting belief that if there's not a 100% solution, then, then no solution should be put in place. I think that's the wrong way to think about it. I think um, we need to put the best solutions in place for a given channel and create different paths so that government mission owners can serve 100% of their population. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Today marks the 22nd anniversary of September 11th, and it was a raw and searing day for Americans who watched the Twin Towers collapse, the Pentagon burn, and a plane meant for the U.S. Capitol slam into a Pennsylvania field. More than 3,000 people died that day. It's a date that has been seared into my brain, as it has many of you listening to this podcast. But after reading an article yesterday, it dawned on me that maybe not all of you listening have memories of 9-11, because it's been 22 years since the attack. Here's an excerpt from an article I read titled, 
For a new generation of Marines, 9-11 is history. All these new recruits were born several days before the 9-11 attacks. Even their instructors have vague memories of that morning. One of the drill sergeants outside was in kindergarten when 9-11 happened. In Sergeant Ross, he was eight years old. Reading that article made me realize how much time had passed since the attacks occurred. So many brave men and women answered the call that day to defend our nation. And today I'm honored to have one of those men, Matthew Thompson. As you'll hear from our conversation, Matt was already headed for a career in the Army Rangers when 9-11 happened. And like so many, this further solidified his belief in his decision to serve his country. But even off the battlefield, he has made it his mission to protect Americans, now in his role at SoCure, the leader in digital identity verification, where he's the senior vice president and general manager of the government business. He's made it his mission to protect the services that are vital to so many Americans since he left active duty when he co-founded IDME and has stayed in the industry leading identity practices at Capital One and Idemia. Today, I'm lucky to have Matt on to talk about why America needs a new digital identity approach. Plus, he's also going to share his 9-11 story and some of the leadership lessons he learned from serving under General Stanley McChrystal as a U.S. Army Ranger at Joint Special Operations Command. Matt, first of all, thank you for your service, and I really appreciate you being on the podcast to talk with me today. Yeah, Brian, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, exciting to uh, follow these podcasts. I've enjoyed uh, listening to them, get a lot of value out of them. So uh, excited to finally have the opportunity to contribute back to the community. I appreciate that, brother. And this episode, as you know, is a really special one for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that it's September 11th, 22 years after the attack. And I know you and I have been talking about how my oldest son has been reading and learning about what took place, which to be honest, has been a, it's been a surreal conversation to have because my wife and I lived through it as, as did you. And we all have our stories of where we were that day when it happened. What do you remember from that day specifically? Yeah, I was at uh, the Virginia Military Institute where you and I actually first met over uh, more than 20 years ago. And mm -hmm. um, I was in class when it happened. And I remember um, some cadets running down the uh, the hall in the engineering building and, and just uh, telling people to turn on the TVs and go uh, look at the news. Um, and, you know, I think uh, everyone was collectively uh, in a bit of shock, as I think the majority of Americans were. And um, for those of us that were, you know, already in process of uh, preparing for military service, I just think it made that commitment um, a, a little bit more real in terms of uh, the implications that we all knew we're going to be on the backside of, of those terrorist attacks. Yeah. It's something, something you and I at least have in common is we were in the same geographic location when that happened. I did my, my rat year at Virginia military Institute where you were uh, a senior that year and the, the, the lead cadet in the entire school. Um, I was a rat and I remember, um, and you'll, you'll appreciate this. I remember being an inspection and being told that I needed to go get a haircut. So coming out of my chemistry class, walking down to the barbershop, and as I walked in, um, there being a television on as the second plane hit the tower, um, yeah. it's kind of seared, seared into my mind and seeing everybody in the entire barbershop's reaction. It was just a very, very surreal moment. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just did the uh, New York City Navy SEAL swim uh, about two weeks ago, which um, was to both honor uh, 
9-11, as well as uh, the Navy SEALs that were killed during extortion 17, which obviously happened as a result of 9-11 as well. and it was it was pretty um, impactful to be back at Ground Zero and um, you know to be there to remember everything that's happened between now and then. Yeah, and and something else I know about you is you were already um, committed to go into the military after your service. So this wasn't something that made you make the decision to go in. But how did I mean? You said you said seeing seeing that happen and experiencing that made it very real. But how else did this impact you in terms of? Um, making your transition into the military? Well, I had, um, you know, been preparing for service as an infantry officer. Um, I think, um, you know, what what happened as a result of 9-11 for those of us that were, you know, just getting ready to enter the military's officers, um, it just ramped up the expectations that we would be battle tested a lot faster, a lot sooner than a lot of our predecessors. And, you know, we had to, it, it kind of created this mental shift of your training for the sake of learning a skill to your training for the sake of learning something that you're going to have to employ in combat. And there's going to be real lives on the line uh, as a result of the decisions you're making. So I just think it heightened the, um, the intensity, um, you know, that, that we felt around the training and preparation that we were doing in our, our last year before going into service. And if I'm not mistaken, you had the the privilege to serve under General General Stanley McChrystal, who I, I know I've been around you when people have referenced uh, his book Team of Teams, and I know that's a culture that you build at SoCure. Um, but your response is is that you lived it. So when people say Team of Teams, what does that mean to you? Yeah, so um, this was very much. Um, the, the work of General McChrystal and, and his direct leadership team of, of how to um, rebuild the culture, transform the culture within Joint Special Operations Command. Um, I had the benefit of, of serving as part of that group um, during three of my four combat deployments and um, got to see kind of the impact of this culture transformation that was really kind of outlined in the book of team of teams. And, and there's been some others, um, other books around the, uh, the culture that he built, um, subsequent to team of teams. But I think that's the the best starting point for a lot of leaders that are trying to, um, you know, build a more agile, um, adaptable, uh, team culture. And, uh, you know, the principles of team of teams is really around, uh, building trust, common purpose, shared consciousness and powered execution within uh, within your team so that you can adapt to this rapidly changing um, environment that we live in, uh, which continues to only accelerate in terms of pace and complexity, um, as well as just build a, a, a bond uh, where people um, are working effectively um, and communicating effectively among uh, one another so that they're getting more things done, without everything having to go up uh, through a centralized chain of command for reporting and approvals. And that's a, a lot of the misconception um, within the military is uh, this strict hierarchy. And while um, the general military probably has that uh, more prominent um, JSOC or Joint Special Operations Command, certainly uh, did not under McChrystal's leadership, he kind of changed that um, the paradigm around uh, decision-making and speed of execution. 
uh, and largely because for a period of time, as, as uh, he has said, and I'll confirm, you know, our most elite units were, were getting beat by, um, you know, a more decentralized, more nimble um, adversary, uh, whether that be Taliban or Al Qaeda. And, um, you know, and we needed to find a way to adapt as, as quickly um, as they were in order to defeat them on the field of battle. And so, you know, I, I have brought the team of teams uh, philosophy and operating model uh, into every civilian organization I've, I've been privileged to lead. And it's had dramatic, positive impact. One of my favorite quotes of all time, and I brought this up to Jen Palka, who also put this in her most recent book, was a quote from General McChrystal. I know I won't get it exactly right, but he talks about um, don't follow the order that I gave you, follow the order that I would have given had I been there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that that to me basically personifies exactly what you just said around decentralized command. And I can see why it would be effective if you enable your team to be able to make those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you build the right team, um, you know, you need to let them make the right decisions. And, uh, you know, that most of us focus on hiring people that are smarter than us, certainly in specialization. Um, and you just need to give them the ability to, to make their own decisions and execute. You talked about bringing that philosophy into the civilian organizations that you worked in. One of those, um, you actually, I don't know how many people know this, you actually helped co-found IDME, which brought you into the digital identity, identity space. Um, and I love the story around, uh, around why. Uh, and I know you just kind of talked about this last week at the the Fed Talks event during your keynote. But could you tell tell the listeners a little bit about why you you helped found IDME because it's very personal for you? Yeah, and and when I left the military, I had an identity crisis of sorts, and not the kind where you know as adult I'm wearing uh, my favorite superhero's costume to work, but <laughs> one where you know I I had a challenge of. Uh, proving that I had served once I left service and um, lots of great businesses and employers out there that want to give um, some type of discount or preference uh, to people who served in the military. And um, once you leave the service, or at least at the time, there wasn't um, an ID card of sorts or easy way to prove that you had served. And um, uh, the flip side of that was at the time I separated, there was also a rise in what had been coined as stolen valor, where a lot of fraudsters were apparently uh, getting easy access to these benefits that they weren't eligible for. And so um, it, it's the it's that challenge that I set out to solve and had made my new mission um, because one, I was super passionate about helping the military community um, and applying kind of my my new newly developed business skills that I gained at uh, at earning my MBA and uh, putting those to work for that community, um, but also you know helping businesses that uh, were being defrauded, um, you know, and and keeping those um, those those fake uh, service members or veterans which became pretty prevalent, um, you know, during that period of time with the stolen valor, um, you know, keeping them out of, uh, the, uh, the benefits, uh, that these companies were trying to offer just to veterans. And so, you know, from there, I spent a couple years working on and focused on the military community and businesses 
government agencies that were focused on serving that community specifically and uh, learned through that effort that the problem was much broader than just the military community, that we all have a challenge uh, improving our identity, especially online. Um, and businesses, government agencies are um, defrauded, you know, at scale by very organized uh, criminal networks, um, nation states in many cases. And, and um, so I kind of expanded the mission uh, uh, statement to be broader than just the military and focus on um, the entire, Amer- you know, American population. And I know you you had a, a period of time where you were an executive at Idemia, which um, anybody who's walked through a, through a TSA at an airport, I think knows, knows Idemia. Um, and you ended up at SoCure where you uh, you were charged with creating the public sector business. And I know one of the things that you've, you've said, that's really important. It's really hard to talk about, uh, digital identity verification without talking about fraud. Um, right. and there's, there's three primaries and I know SoCure is very passionate about educating people in this market, but, um, can you talk a little bit about the the three primary types of fraud, first party, third party, and then um, something that's really on the rise right now, synthetic identity fraud. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll, I'll take them in the reverse order because that's typically the way that we approach it. So third party fraud is um, where I've taken Brian Chittister's information, all of your PII, which is accessible uh, through multiple channels because of all the breaches that we've had. But it, let's just um, agree that it's not very hard to get access to people's uh, personally identifiable information, your name, date of birth, address, social, mm-hmm. um, et cetera. And, you know, third party fraud is where I am taking your information and impersonating you um, for a benefit or service. Synthetic uh, fraud, which is um, on the rise in, and has been uh, in financial services for about the past decade, but we're certainly seeing um, a rise of it in government programs is where um, someone has manipulated or fabricated real identity elements to put them together in in order to um, look, smell, feel like a real identity, but it's not associated with a real human being uh, or a single human being. It's not all associated with that single uh, person. And so I I often uh, refer to that as Frankenstein identity. So it's taking a bunch of piece parts of other people's identity and kind of uh, weaving it together. Um, And then first party fraud is is, uh, where someone is a bad actor. They, you know, um, don't pay their bills. They write bad checks, um, you know, and and that's kind of um, uh, the other type of, of primary identity fraud that we see. I think one of the first things that people think about when they hear around digital identity is they think around validation to get into your systems, right? From an employee standpoint, um, whereas SoCure is really working on kind of the tip of the spear, getting services out to the citizens. Um, from meeting with customers and leaders in this space, what have been some of the more pressing challenges that leaders are facing when it comes to digital identity verification? Well, in government in particular, um, you know, I would say right now it's it's an understanding um, challenge of of how modern uh, identity systems need to operate in order to um, prove as many good people with as little friction as possible, while preventing um, you know the evolving types of fraud attacks that are happening across government programs. I think everyone 
is acutely aware of the magnitude of the problem. I mean, COVID certainly highlighted that we lost um, tens, potentially hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, the number is is um, is large, regardless of what number it actually is. And you know, we'll probably never really fully know because it's hard to know of all the fraud that um, uh, went through the system during you know the the two three years that. Um, the government was pushing uh, money out to support people during the pandemic. But at the end of the day, I think everyone's aware that there's a huge problem. I think there's a gap in understanding of how to solve it and what things they need to think about, focus on when they're looking at, you know, how do we approve as many good people as possible while preventing as much fraud as possible. And I think the um, the challenge in government that I haven't had in, in, in you know, prior um, commercial roles that focus on digital identity, like Capital One, is um, in government, you know, the mission owners have to solve for 100% of the population. And that's really hard to do. Um, you've you've got to find a way through some channel to be able to serve all constituents and, and make services available to everyone. I think there's a balance, though, when you can do it through certain channels in a way that puts uh, less friction on the majority of the people um, you know, and, um, and prevents as much fraud through that channel as possible while not, um, limiting, um, I think there's a limiting belief that if there's not a hundred percent solution, then, then no solution should be put in place. I think that's the wrong way to think about it. I think, um, we need to put the best solutions in place, um, for a given channel and create different paths so that government mission owners can serve hundred percent of their population. But, there is no kind of one size fits all approach to digital identity. There's no one uh, technology that can solve all of the end to end identity challenges. And um, um, and again, I think this is about finding um, the best solutions for different channels and, and different approaches to verifying who people are. That's what I think is interesting is I think there's a, a myth out there, especially as government's been so hyper-focused on the customer experience side of things that to deliver personalized customer experience or a top customer experience, that maybe there has to be a human involved. And the interesting dichotomy, especially when it comes to digital identification, is the more that you can get through without a human element, it actually reduces that wait time, the time tax, as the Biden administration has talked about, Mm -hmm. um, and it saves the government substantial amounts of money so I think removing that human element actually provides a, a far greater personalized, a far greater uh, delight to the citizen. Is that what you're finding as well? Yeah, I, I do think you're going to always need to have some capacity for people that just prefer to do business mm-hmm. in person. And so that that can't go away and that should be owned by uh, the agencies um, or should be some kind of governmental function. Um, you know, But at the end of the day, I think today we can solve for the vast majority of the population through, you know, online or mobile channels and, um, and do it in a way that we we have a lot of certainty that they are who they claim to be and not a fraudster. Um, and, and, and these, you know, these technologies that, that solve for this are getting much more accurate, um, and much more resilient. Um, but I think the flip side of that is, you know, this is a constantly evolving 
space or threat space where you know the the bad actors are constantly evolving as well so you can't you can't use approaches that are static uh you have to have dynamic approaches to solving for this because the population looks different over time that you're trying to serve the constituents you're serving look different over time and the fraud actors are are rapidly evolving as well so you have to have dynamic solutions in place to to help adapt with those changes I'm glad you brought that up because I think when you think about dynamic technologies that are being used by fraudsters, my brain goes immediately to artificial intelligence, which has been a big conversation right now, AI sure. and ML. How is, it, how is that having an impact in the space? Yeah, well, I think the, uh, the, the headlines right now are focused around deep fakes and how easy it is uh, for Gen AI to produce um, you know, voice uh, voice and other biometric uh, face or video images that are near identical to um, to a real human life form, and those can pass a lot of the uh, the biometric technologies in the market today. So we, we've got to look holistically at identity elements and not you know not just use kind of single points of verification or authentication, um, like has been the predominant model. In your opinion, how does government keep up with the dynamic change that, um, fr- I mean, fraudsters don't have to go through a procurement acquisition cycle, right? They can find technologies that are mainstream and they can they can um, make it actionable to, to attack and defraud government agencies. How are, or how can governments keep up with that level of change from the enemy? Yeah, I mean, I've, I, you know, I was uh, just working with one state on this very issue of how they need to modify or think about changes to their contracting to accommodate for machine learning type applications. And uh, while a lot of their contracting has been set up to support and evolve to, to be SaaS friendly, I would say we still got a lot of work to do in terms of making it AI machine learning friendly. And that's probably the next frontier. And, and we're starting to, you know, partner with, with states as well as federal agencies. Cause I agree. I mean, if um, the, the adversaries are absolutely using uh, AI ML to, uh, you know, to overcome the controls that are in place at the front door of these applications. And if, similar things, technologies are not being used by government, they're going to, they're going to struggle. And so I I think it's, um, it's a hard challenge. And I think we're just on the, you know, we're in the first quarter of it. Um, We got a lot of work to do. And I think it's through partnership. And, and, you know, I I believe companies like SoCure um, that are ML based are going to need to partner with government to help them, you know, make these changes that are necessary to incorporate more of these technologies into their kind of operating model. You, you brought up the pandemic earlier, and I think all you had to do, especially during the pandemic, but even now is turn on the television, you see a story about the fraud that happened. Um, and as you mentioned, the, we may never even know the total impact. But a lot of that was because of another word you use, which is the dynamic nature of everything shifting to digital. Uh, from from draconian means, right? There literally was no other choice. Everything shifted to digital. How did this really have a, a great impact on the attack vector for fraudsters? 
Well, I think it was exposed pretty early that um, as as things were rapidly put online overnight by government, that you know there weren't going to be sufficient controls in place to prevent fraudsters from from you know effectively impersonating real constituents. And so I think there was just a a shift, I would call it, from fraud that was probably predominantly focused on the financial system in the U.S. at the time over to government benefits because that's where the money was going out. And um, and it was um, not very well uh, protected, um, still largely isn't today. And I think there's a lot of improvements that are underway, but, you know, still a lot of work to do to uh, to better protect those programs from from fraud, waste and abuse. And, and um, you know, I think it was just a um, it was an easy target that was mass exploited um, because going back to the, you know, team of teams model to tie it in a little bit. I mean, you know, the the fraudsters are very well networked, um, very decentralized. They're good at uh, quickly sharing tactics, techniques, and procedures that are working. Um, and I would say they do that better, more effectively and efficiently than we do on the service delivery side or the government side of, of sharing information about um, fraud attacks or, you know, these TTPs that we see um, at SoCure that we that we work to, to stop largely in the financial services space today. Um, so I think there's, um, I think there's again, a large culture and mind shift um, that has to happen around this in government, similar to kind of what General McChrystal led us through at JSOC, where you know we become more networked against the adversary, um, you know, and we are better at information sharing and and better at kind of decentralized execution. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think especially during the pandemic, and we would see these headlines. I'm sure a lot of people out there think it's it's some guy in a basement kind of coming up with ways to to get a little extra money out of some of these agencies or some of these businesses. But it is very much a professionalized uh, attack, right? I mean, even from nation states, some of, some of which funding terrorism, right? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's certainly the former that exists. I call them kind of the pickpocketers. Um, and there's a lot of people out there that are just pickpocketing government because uh, it's easy and there hasn't been a lot of repercussion. Um, I mean, think about all of the headlines we saw related to the fraud that occurred during the pandemic and then juxtapose that with how few to know uh, headlines that we're seeing around fraudsters that were actually persecuted. Um, there have there have been some, uh, but it's really limited. And certainly, if you if you look at the scale of the one versus the other, it's pretty dramatic. And you know, those are things that I pay attention to and look at. And so, if if we're not actually going after these criminals, whether they're pickpocket criminals or you know, the more concerning. I think is the uh, the the attacks that are happening at scale by organized criminal networks. Uh, you know that at the end of the day is is um, you know we, we need to shut those down. Um, I I know there's certainly work by the FBI and and other law enforcement organizations to go after those, uh, but a lot of them are overseas as well, so it becomes harder to do that. Um, 
And so I think the best remedy is for us just to up our controls, uh, improve the technologies we're using. So it's just not that easy for them to do what they did, you know, just two years ago. Um, the other thing is, you know, on top of the accountability, just general accountability is, is really looking at this from the perspective of, you know, government, my, my opinion, has a stewardship responsibility in terms of protecting their constituents' data, not just the benefits and not just the taxpayer dollars that they are um, responsible for administering or distributing, but also, you know, there's a there's a stewardship responsibility from my perspective of how we're making sure that it's not easy for other people to use someone else's identity information to enroll and create an account or go after a benefit. Because what happens in government is if I steal Brian Chittister's information, I apply for unemployment and I live in Virginia. So the Virginia Employment Commission is where I would file for uh, unemployment, you know, and it's it's actually um, when they find out that I fraudulently use your information to apply for benefits, you get notified of that. You, Brian, uh, you're like, hey, I, you know, I didn't apply for these benefits. It's now um, incumbent upon you to fix that. And you've got to prove that it wasn't you. And so going back to your comment about the time tax, I mean, there's a lot of time that's being wasted, uh, not just in the process of legitimate people applying for benefits, but in legitimate people having to fix when someone fraudulently used their identity, which obviously you were completely unaware of, and now have to spend that time resolving the issue. I think that's that's a side of things that people, I think, don't realize too. We all think about kind of locking our front door, but what happens when there are when when damages do happen, right? And then then what happens and how is government going to support? I think that's I think that's a big challenge and a big conversation that certainly needs to be had from the experience yeah. standpoint. Well, that that was the focus of my uh, Fed talk last week is that America needs uh, a new identity and it's really around uh, a, a new approach to digital identity. Um, which is central, I believe, in terms of how we are serving constituents, uh, and you know, certainly something that needs to be treated and and thought of as critical infrastructure in America. So, Matt, one last one last question before I give you a chance to leave some final thoughts. I know um, as government's been getting closer to the private sector, th- there's also a greater push for transparency, right? They they want to see kind of how the sausage is made and understand a lot of these things. I'm curious, especially as it pertains to digital identity, how do you think that level of transparency will impact things going forward? Yeah, I think um, I'll I'll start with something that's prominent in kind of the identity industry, and that's around user centricity. I think we need to design these solutions um, from the user's point of view and really uh, provide uh, and empower uh, the user to be able to view and understand uh, what data is being collected about them, how it's being used. Um, We've got a long way to go in terms of rebuilding trust in digital service delivery because of a lack of the transparency that we've had and because everybody saw the the misuse of people's identity information to commit fraud, as as, as we just spent a lot of time talking about. I think there's a, um, I think there's an opportunity though for uh, government to get this right and to regain 
trust and enable that choice uh, that people are looking for in a modern world. And that's, um, you know, that is by, um, you know, being clear around privacy, giving uh, control to the individual with respect to their identity information, um, you know, and, and making sure that um, the value exchange of what you're giving up for what you're getting is clear and understandable, um, you know, to the person that is being asked to provide their information. So uh, again, I think there's a lot of good blueprints out there for how we get to better identity in America. Um, but I think, uh, you know, again, we're, we're kind of in the first quarter of this, uh, of this ball game and uh, have a lot of work in front of us, but it's exciting work. And I think um, we're all Avengers in this fight together. Hey, Matt, I, I really appreciate the time. Um, although us all being Avengers and in it together, I, I think that's a great final thought, but I'm going to give you one more chance to leave some other final thoughts if you'd like to. Yeah, I, I look, I think um, it, it's imperative that government leaders, and I know you have a lot of uh, people in government who listen to this podcast, you know, take time to learn about um, the, the foundational elements of digital identity. Uh, you know, we, we worked with uh, GovTech to build uh, a digital identity playbook for government technology leaders. It's really kind of at a 101 level, but I think it lays out a lot of the important principles and considerations for designing an end-to-end -end identity uh, system. It's, it's vendor agnostic, so it's not you know, all about SoCure. SoCure does one part of uh, the identity journey, and, and we just happen to do that part better than anyone else, but we're, we're one part of that kind of uh, tech stack that's necessary um, for a full modern identity solution or system today. And um, so I, I just think, you know, invest time in educating yourselves, educating your teams, um, you know, and looking beyond just government to for best practices and best in class technology. I think the financial services industry, uh, you know, where I had a leadership role in digital identity at Capital One uh, is, is really advanced, rel certainly relative to government. And I think there's a lot of um, learnings that government would benefit from uh, by looking and engaging with, uh, with the financial services industry uh, as, as one place to look for best practices. But, um, you know, we're in this together and, uh, you know, look forward to partnering with many of the people that listen to this podcast to, uh, to build uh, better identity for America. Matt, thanks so much for being here and, and can't thank you enough for, for sharing your story around 9-11 and kind of diving into your, your military career. Thank you for your service. Um, and hope we can have you on again sometime. Yeah, thanks so much, Brian. Appreciate what you do. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.